Welcome to Mind Reading's Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice. It's animated by the question of whether doctors and patients speak the same language and how we can use narrative to bridge the evident gaps. Mind Reading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Diseases of Modern Life Project and the University of Birmingham, and has since expanded to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland, including UCD School of English Drama and Film. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events, but are brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research in contemporary medical practice, especially in the field of mental health. So this series brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we had to postpone, and is brought to you by the Humanities Institute at UCD and RCPI Archives. Today's episode is entitled Written on the Body, Eating Disorders and Narrative. My name is Dr. Claire Hayes-Brady of the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. Our next guest on today's episode, Written on the Body, Eating Disorders and Narrative, is Dr. Elizabeth Barrett. Elizabeth is a consultant in child and adolescent liaison psychiatry, psychological medicine in Children's University Hospital Temple Street and Associate Professor of Psychiatry at University College Dublin. Elizabeth has a clinical and research interest in the interface between medical and psychiatric comorbidity, eating disorders, somatic symptoms in medicine, anxiety, neuropsychiatry and tic disorders. She's a past member of the Eating Disorder Model of Care Group and a member of the Paediatric Clinical Advisory Group. Elizabeth holds a master's in medical education and is involved with undergraduate and postgraduate teaching and training at UCD, RCPI, Trinity College Dublin and other fora. Currently, Elizabeth is a trainer for paediatric and psychiatry trainees and collaborates with international research examining European training and trainee burnout and vulnerability and relating to COVID-19 and the impact on mental health. Elizabeth is an accredited Ballant lead and leads national interdisciplinary clinician groups and is the clinical lead for Schwartz Rounds at Temple Street Hospital. Welcome, Liz. Thanks, Claire. It's so lovely to be here today. And I think it's fantastic to bring together a group of professionals to think about patient voice and how we can include it in teaching and training and everyday clinical practice. I was thinking about this from a very practical perspective. I got involved with uh, Dr. Melissa Dixon in developing mind reading way back in 2012. I was doing a fellowship at Great Ormond Street and my fellowship was in eating disorders and I was working at Great Ormond Street and the Royal Free and it was pretty stressful as a trainee to be in a kind of a tier four specialist eating disorder service. All the young people in the service were, you know, when I started, I was getting to know people uh, and it was a bit overwhelming. And I joined a writing group really as a hobby and as a way to process feelings almost. And I just as it happened, it was a writing group around the corner from the hospital. And sure, sure enough, it was full of interdisciplinary professionals who worked in lots of different areas but we're all working, you know, in, in related fields, or at least we discovered that there were lots of commonalities between our work as the group went on, which was fantastic. So I became really interested in how doctors can use writing as a way of reflecting about the emotional impact of the work. And that's something. So after my fellowship, I came, I came obviously home to Ireland to work in a pediatric hospital where I specialize in seeing young people who have both physical and mental health difficulties. So that covers a whole range of things from, you know, children with lots and lots of medical conditions. But obviously one of the examples of that is young people who, who are struggling with an eating disorder who are admitted to the hospital because they're very medically unwell. So as Harriet has said, you know, many, many people are managed in the community. The vast majority of people are attending community services. But sometimes when people are very medically ill, they end up being admitted within a pediatric hospital, often for kind of acute medical support and management. And we provide mental health support and often we're teeing people up for the journey that is ahead of them. And um, so I became very interested in how do we support clinicians and networks? 
Um, and how do we support trainees to gain exposure and experience in the area of, of eating disorders? Um, what's the best way to do that? How do we um, get trainees to think about empathy and vulnerability and understanding the, the position of the patient? And I suppose the other thing is one of the joys of working as a fellow, I was, I suppose, at a reasonably senior stage in my career and I was going to be there for a year. So at least I had time and longevity. So when I started, it was very overwhelming. I didn't know the patients. But actually, of course, a year later, you've seen people go on a on a long journey, but often people are in recovery or, you know, physically things have moved on for them. Things have moved on from a mental health perspective. And that's a joyful thing as a clinician. But I think a lot of junior doctors, when they're rotating through posts, they're in a post for, you know, six months or a year. They don't have that experience. They don't get to see when things start to improve, when recovery starts to happen. You know, how supports for parents and carers of young people with eating struggles can be really effective and helpful. So it was, I really started to think about how could we scaffold that sort of learning and teaching, you know. So for me, I didn't approach it really from an academic perspective initially. I really approached the idea of medical humanities as a support for me personally as a doctor working in this arena and then thinking about, you know, how can we use it in, how can we use strategies from medical humanities and medical education? And even when I think further back, you know, after medical school, I started training in pediatric medicine and was, it was all very physically oriented. And I looked after many, many young people who had struggles around food and eating but their struggles were very poorly understood, I think, in the wider medical community because there wasn't a lot of time to reflect and think about the story or the narrative of a patient. The focus was very much on kind of physical well-being through no fault of anyone's. Just services were under pressure, were busy, you know, were trying to focus very much on refeeding um, without perhaps having the opportunity to do more reflective work. And, you know, that as a paediatric trainee, maybe that was very challenging and not very satisfying. Um, and the idea that as a liaison psychiatrist, I'm in this unique position where I work with physicians and paediatricians and networks of people. I mean, there's so many people who work with young people in my hospital when people are really experiencing very significant medical struggles around eating disorders, but also from a mental health perspective. So I work with dietitians sometimes physiotherapists, OTs, SLTs, like a real range of professionals. So there are real opportunities, I think, for narrative and for medical education to, to explore those areas. And I suppose even from that time when I was doing my fellowship, some of those stories have stayed with me because stories are powerful things. And Harriet has said, every story is different and unique. I still remember young people from my fellowship telling me about their experience of eating disorders and how terrifying and scary things were, or perhaps sometimes how they used, you know, the eating disorder was actually helpful in some ways in supporting them through other crises in their lives. I still think of those stories. I had a funny experience a few years later. I was back in London at a conference and I was at a local shopping centre around the corner from the hospital and a young person came up and tapped me on the shoulder and I didn't recognise her, you know. She had grown at least a foot since I had last seen her. She was now, you know, a late age adolescent in her late teens and she said hello and she told me who she was and I remembered her immediately. But in my head, she was still this 12-year-old girl that I had met you know, on an eating disorder ward. And now she was in a really different place in her life. 
So stories stay with us, but of course they have to change over time. And for some, you know, clinicians, I think stories can be very meaningful. Now everyone's different, right? So uh, narrative is a great way to moderate learning for people who are interested in narrative. Not everyone is interested in stories and narrative. But, you know, I think as humans, we're generally interested in telling stories and sharing stories. So I think there's a real opportunity to do that. So sometimes, um, you know, composite narratives of patients might be an example of that. So when you read a textbook, there might be descriptions. As Harriet said, it's kind of sometimes a a one size fits all sort of overarching description, but then finding nuances within that with patients. But I do think there are other ways that stories stay with us. So sometimes they allow us to, you know, empathize, but they also allow us to, you know, think about projection and transference and some of the concepts that Harriet has mentioned. And what is it that's, you know, making things difficult in the room? Is it me projecting something or is it the young person projecting something or is it the parent? Or is it a very tangled mess of all of those things that's very hard to separate out? in a way that's, you know, constructed as therapeutic. And I suppose reading stories and thinking about um, close reading and exploring different aspects and perspectives, I think think for trainees and for interdisciplinary professionals might be a really great way to model that because it's sometimes very hard to do the learning in the room, you know, and sometimes very hard in busy clinical jobs to find uh, ways to do that. And I suppose sometimes young people have lots of ideas about that themselves. They'll tell you where professionals are getting things wrong and they're not understanding and why why things aren't the way they should be. Um, I mean, I was joking yesterday. I had a profession, a, a young person who told me about a play I'd never read. We were talking about she's a reader. So when I meet a young person who's a reader, sometimes we can share some stories. So we were talking about a book called Turtles All the Way Down. And there's a young person in the book who has um, anxiety and OCD, it's very well described. And she was able to tell me what parts of this person's life she was able to relate to and what parts she didn't. And then she recommended a book to me. She said, have you read Dear Evan Hansen? And I said, no. And she said, you should read that. You know, it's great, great play, she said. And of course, I haven't read it since yesterday, but how wonderful that we were having a discussion about fictional characters and the things that that fictional character was experiencing that were similar to things in her own life. And sometimes it's it's easier, I suppose, to, to discuss difficult things at one degree of remove, uh, or at least it's perhaps easier for a young person to, to initiate a conversation or bring a conversation in a way like that. And I've had lots of success over the years with children who are interested in reading using um, experiences like that. I have a very, uh, uh, there's a very nice poem by Stephen Dunn, which is, I don't know if anyone knows that it's about a young person. The teacher is asking a group of young people what places, you know, are their special place. And there's silence. Uh, You can imagine a room of adolescents being asked, you know, what's your special place? Where do you like to go? And the teenagers all go very quiet. And one boy says it's his car and he talks about why he loves being in his car. He listens to music. He, he, you know, he feels safe there. He feels relaxed there. And then the other young people start volunteering information. And sometimes I share that poem with young people because actually it reminds the adults in the room that actually it's not always about home being the best place or hospital being the best place. Sometimes there's a variety of other places where children feel very engaged and valued and special. Um, music is a good example. Um, and I think it's it's good to remind ourselves as professionals, like we're kind of a bit far removed from adolescence sometimes. And we we forget that adolescence has really, really changed and adolescent pressures have really changed. And those are really good conversations to start. 
The other thing I often use is uh, a lived experience article, um, which was published in the BMJ a few years ago by Rebecca Knight. And it's about a young doctor who has anorexia nervosa herself. And the reason I use it sometimes in teaching, I'm always conscious. I teach fifth year medical students. I teach interdisciplinary professionals in pediatrics and general practice and lots of other settings. So some of the professionals or students will have a lot of exposure to young people with eating disorders. So for example, if you do your psychiatry placement in one of the eating disorder services, but other people will never have met a young person professionally with an eating disorder. I use this lived experience article because it's a young doctor talking about her own experience. And she talks about the bleakness of the experience of having anorexia. She describes at one point that she's asked to give a description of her experience of anorexia. And she says she can give it in one word. For her, it's isolation. And she describes for her what the experience of having anorexia is like. The other helpful thing she does, uh, and it's a very medical thing, you'll probably all laugh, but she also gives some nice explanations of the physical sequelae of her eating problems. So I always feel when I use it in a teaching session, it gives the students a memorable story to hook the physical symptoms onto. So that if they're in an emergency department or a CAMS clinic in you know, a year or two's time, that that story will stay with them. They'll remember, you know, the physical sequelae or they'll remember where to get the information when they're meeting a patient or a family. And there are some really, really good tools, as, as Harriet well knows, as part of the model of care for eating disorders. A lot of good tools and strategies were identified. But of course, a junior doctor, you know, in an emergency department or a GP who doesn't see very many people with eating disorders, they may not have recently come across those things. So sometimes it's good to have a little prompt you know, I remember that story and one of the things that they talked about was the model of care or junior Mars plan or, you know, thinking about a few linked things that might support professionals. So I suppose from that perspective, I've always been really keen to use narrative. And, and I'm glad to hear Emily is going to talk a little bit about bibliotherapy, because I think lots of clinicians use bibliotherapy in a very informal way. I think thinking about it in a more formal way might be helpful. But I, I absolutely what Harriet has said about the pros and cons and pitfalls of the process, I think, are really important. For me, over the years, a few things, I was thinking about a few books I've read over the years where I thought, oh, isn't that so interesting? I've learned something. The Wonder by Emma Donoghue, representation of the fasting girls, girls in the you know 1850s and 60s who weren't able to eat and were considered to be had to have mystical powers. Uh, and again, in that book, a lot of physical sequelae of uh, malnutrition are, are explored and um, some stressors. Now, again, you know, the story comes to a very rapid resolution where things are fixed very quickly, which isn't sort of a typical pattern necessarily. But there are lots of things in this fictional representation of an eating struggle that are thought provoking and interesting and good to think about. Then I, I remember Weightless by Sarah Bannon. I don't know if anyone has read that, but it's a really interesting read. It's written in the third person plural and it's about a young person who's experiencing bullying um, and has several adverse experiences uh, combined with eating struggles and mood difficulties. Certainly inspired by real life events, very thought provoking about adolescent life and the ro role of food and nutrition in terms of managing stress and distress and control over your environment. So that's a very thought provoking one. 
And then interestingly, a teenager once told me about how I live now. I think it's because it's now been made into a movie with Saoirse Ronan. The book is, again, it's a post-apocalyptic kind of a scenario with a young person who has longstanding eating struggles. And many, many life things happen for the adolescent. Um, But she certainly learns to manage food and nutrition in a different way. So they're all just thought-provoking things that, you know, sometimes people have read, sometimes they haven't. But I think they can inspire conversation and certainly debate about what parts of of these representations are helpful or unhelpful. I don't know that they're necessarily solutions to anything, but I think they're a good starting point sometimes for conversation. So I guess my final thoughts really are that um, teams working with young people with eating disorders can be under immense pressure and often experience what we call splitting, you know, where um, people may be you know, allied, where everyone's trying to be allied together against the eating problem. But sometimes we end up flitting into taking positions on other aspects of illness or family life, or sometimes we end up down rabbit holes about things and things can get quite stuck. And I do think if we can bring it back to narrative and the patient story, that's really, really powerful. And sometimes if we can use other narratives to remind ourselves that actually, you know, these cases are often complicated young people don't come to us as Harriet says in the perfect box having the typical presentation most young people are presenting with a range of different difficulties that they're experiencing and managing in their lives so I think the power of narrative can be really helpful on teams in terms of managing compassion fatigue finding compassion in sometimes challenging situations so I hope um, after I hear Emily and Aoife's talk, I'm going to have lots more ammunition, lots more tools in the armory to use in my clinical practice. So thanks again. It's a delight to be here today, folks.